Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're back to Boaz is where we're picking up with verse 1, now Boaz. Um, basically, you've got Boaz is a, the Lord of the harvest, and he's a, a, this chapter, he's got a bride with a promise that he's given to her, and she went back to her home to wait for that promise to be fulfilled. But he's a groom on a mission, so the story shifts back to Boaz tonight. Naomi and Ruth, Ruth, remember, shows up while it's still... The daylight hasn't quite broken, and Naomi has to even ask that who it is. So they're kind of waiting for daylight to come, and they're in the night at this point. Um, some commentators, just for context, imagine that Naomi and Ruth would have gone down to the city gate and watched everything that's happening in chapter 4. But the Bible doesn't say that they went down to the city gate to watch everything that was happening. So in the imagery, I think when we get to the end, just imagining where those two are at, I think of, you look at the typology and how perfectly Ruth fits with Jesus and the church. The church right now is, does not see Jesus and what's going on behind the scenes. And where, there is this long period of waiting before Christ returns, this with, before the light has broken season. And we don't quite know what's happening behind the scenes. And that is the narrative here, is that, we, that Naomi and Ruth maybe don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So there's different ways to look at what's happening tonight. Um, but they are waiting. They're abiding in the promises they've been given by Boaz until the light shines and they're claimed and redeemed by their Lord. The question, um, the question sometimes is, is and, and for me, at least this will be a question for heaven. Like <laughs> when I get to heaven, it's one of those little things I want to ask. If they're in the town of Bethlehem and Naomi and Ruth are broke, poor people, where might they be staying in Bethlehem? And I got to ask when I get to heaven, because it seems like it would be a perfect symmetry, because mangers then were rock formations that overhung, and you could easily put animals in and out of them. So even if it wasn't a manger at this period in history, it would have still been the rock formation that would have been a perfect fit for that kind of a place. And you wonder to some degree if where Naomi and Ruth are staying right now is actually maybe the same place that Joseph and Mary landed out of, outside of their control. And so it's a question for me for heaven is, where did Ruth and Naomi stay? And was it the same place? And I, I imagine to myself that like the Lord will say, yeah, it actually was the same place. But I just kept that for myself and for people that would ask when they come to heaven. But you never know. But it's a great question to ask is where would two women without inheritance and without family, where would they be staying right now? And, but they're in the town of Bethlehem. They're in the same neighborhood, at least, as where Joseph and Mary came. And it fits this image that we have coming up. So Boaz has got this nameless punk we got to deal with tonight, and he's going to get rid of this guy, and then he's going to claim his bride. So here we go, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate uh, and sat down there, and behold, a close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Like, no accidents. Like, behold, there's the guy. He just shows up. Um, so Boaz says, come aside, friend. Sit down here. And he came aside, and he sat down. And then he took... Ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is gathering a court, like very kind of an impromptu courtroom. And I think he was ready to do this instantly. The city gate in verse 1, we know this. In ancient cities, the gate is where all civic matters were tended to. Because you could deal with people in the city, outside the city. They had spots to sit. It's where the elders would sit. When David's son wants to take over Jerusalem, he goes down and sits in the city gate and pretends he's the judge of the city, remember? So this is where that leadership would happen and where official decisions would happen. So Boaz, being a man of honor, has to take care of this in an honorable way. Um, and Boaz is bringing it to the city gates. That's how it's done. He brings the witnesses in, which makes it legal. He brings in these 10 elders of the city so that whatever's going to happen here is going to be official and it's going to be binding. Um, interesting for me, he asks Ruth to be silent. 
And part of why he asked Ruth to be silent is because he's about to, to make a play on this guy that only works if he's blindsiding him. So there has to be something that's not revealed to this other kinsman so that he goes along with what Boaz wants. So Ruth being quiet is going to help with that. And then Boaz recognizes him, so when he comes walking by, he knows exactly who this guy is. So at some level, Boaz maybe has thought about this whole scenario. And he has a plan when it actually comes. When he says, come aside, friend, in the Hebrew, that's paloni, or, and paloni almoni. So it's kind of a, um, I think it maybe is where we get the word pal from. Uh, but it's a really vague reference to somebody. So in the Hebrew, it's more like, hey, you there. So he doesn't name him. He doesn't call him by a name. Uh, this guy isn't worth naming. But literally, it's like, hey, you person. Um, or, hey, pal. Hey, buddy. Come here. And it was just this kind of really um, vague, imperfect thing. Um, and because he's not Boaz's equal when it comes to honor or valor, Boaz doesn't name him as an equal. And that is important when it comes to the typology of Christ, right? He's not dealing with an equal at this point. He is dealing with somebody that seems to have a claim on them, a kinsman redeemer that neglects their duty. Back in Deuteronomy 25.9, here's how you treat somebody that hasn't taken care of their responsibilities. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. That's the hey pal that we're talking to. It's this pal guy that doesn't do his job, right? So he hasn't redeemed. It's been months. We've had two, both the barley season and the wheat season have passed. And this guy has not taken care of his brother's wife. So he's, he should be getting his face spat in. Boaz is going to handle it slightly different. He's got a little more grace and a little more tact. Um, but the writer of the story, nor Boaz, used this person's name, um, and we get there. So whoever this guy is, or we'll just call him whoever guy, the whoever pal guy that, that is there, he should have been taking care of Naomi and Ruth the day they showed up back in Bethlehem. Like they should have came right under his roof and he should have taken care of them. So even though they came into a world where he was responsible for them or had claimed that position in the family, um, the fact that they don't, instead of being cared for, Naomi and Ruth are both hungry, anxious about where they're going to get food. They're fearful of it. They worry about it. Ruth goes to work and gleaning in the fields to try to provide for her and Naomi. All of these troubles are there because the post person who's supposed to be their redeemer doesn't really want to redeem them. He just wants to ignore those responsibilities. Verse 3, then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, so he's giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm just going to inform you, like he didn't know in this small town where everybody knew everything and everybody else's business. I just wanted to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people, and if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you're not going to redeem it, then tell me that I may know, So, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And Whoever guy says, I'll redeem it. So Boaz introduces the topic to be about land. Land has value. It produces wealth. So here's this thing that's worth a lot, and you should redeem this thing that's worth a lot. Essentially, Boaz says, you have a duty. Park in the spot or move along so somebody else can have the spot. Right? Or, or you know, there's more vulgar ways that you can put that too. Like, get out of the line. Right? Move, move out of the way because you're blocking up grace and you're getting in the way of my love that I can offer to these two women. So make a decision, and if you're going to be honorable, then be honorable and do it. And if you're not, it's been months. It's time to make a decision. So this is one of those things that I, I think we see the heart of God through the book of Ruth. And the heart of God is, you've been claimed for too long with somebody who hasn't cared for you. There's a responsibility that God wants to carry out in our lives because he wants to redeem us. But there is an enemy that has a claim on our life that gets in the way of that. And he's had control for too long. Enough of this. And God's heart is like, it's time to move along. And, and the enemy or, or the world's claim on us doesn't bring us fruit. It just makes us hungry and tired and worried and anxious, just like Naomi and Ruth. So if not you, then me. Um, Boaz, by the way, a note on this. 
Boaz, the whole time, has already been providing for Naomi and Ruth. He's just been doing it, remember, under the radar? Like he worked with his workers in the fields to make sure they got some food. And they, so he's already taken care of them even before he returns for his bride. There's already a blessing and a provision that's coming. It's just nowhere near the provision and blessing that Boaz has got planned for her. And I just love that idea. So Boaz names Naomi. Who is he forgetting to name here? Or is he actually got this all planned out? Like he's not naming Ruth, right? He's just naming Naomi in the land, and he's keeping it there strictly as a land transaction. So this is a community discussion. The city's there, the elders are there, and some people even imagine Naomi and Ruth are kind of in the corner listening to this too. Um, but either way, as per chapter 3, verse 18, Ruth is sitting still and she's staying quiet. So she's, even if she's there, she's not involving herself right now. So Boaz has kind of got this whole situation on lock. I think he knows the character of the somebody guy. Like he kind of knows what kind of person this is. So he's reeling him in a little bit. Um, Naomi is too old to have kids because she would be, she's already had kids. Those kids have both died. So when you talk about Naomi, she's going to eventually die, and then who gets the land? It would be somebody guy that gets the land. So there's no threat of losing it, so financially that's a really good transaction. It's kind of cut and dry. So we get the sense when, when pal guy wants the land, he says, I'll redeem it, that he's looking at it as a financial transaction and he wants to expand his farm or his business. Then Boaz says, then Boaz drops the bomb here. Then Boaz says, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, and one more thing. <laughs> if you get that, you say you'll do it. So he's already given his word. You say you'll do it. You also get the Moabitess. Now, there's a few things that could be where this adds a whole new spin on it, but we'll get to the... So Naomi's sons had an inheritance, but when they married Ruth, Ruth then became part of the family. She was grafted into the kingdom. So even though she's a Moabitess, she has a claim to that land because any child she has represents the dead son that would have had that land. So that dead son is half Jewish or half Hebrew and would fully claim Elimelech's land when that happened. Now Ruth's a little bit younger, probably 30s, early 40s, perfectly able to still have kids, now there's a threat that you would buy this land, but you'd have to give it up in a few years when the son is born. So that adds a whole kind of situation to this. And it makes it so you don't necessarily get it. So initially the guy does what's right, and then he totally shifts gears when he hears this new situation. Verse 6, and the close relative, the somebody guy, says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. That's absolutely how he sees this. This is a financial mess if I do this. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Maybe he's a fool and he doesn't have resources. Like He can't afford to do this. So if he thinks he's, there's something in it for him, then he's all for it. As soon as there's a sacrifice that's required, he bails. He has no interest in sacrifice. He's totally selfish in that regard. So taking care of Naomi for a few years and then owning land, that's profitable taking care of two women for a few years and possibly likely losing that land, that's not profitable. That's a risk. So the risk-benefit goes out of the way, and he's thinking like the world. So not willing to sacrifice, not willing to do it. Some guy's not a man of honor, and that's why he's been sitting on this for four months. So Boaz isn't uh, doing this out of profit, that would imply. He doesn't need the money. He's the lord of the harvest. He doesn't need Naomi and Ruth. He loves Naomi and Ruth. So that idea that Boaz is somehow desperate in this situation, no, he's not. He's got resources, he's got wealth, he's got the harvest, he's got men servants, he's got female servants. He's fine, but he has a heart for Naomi and Ruth, and he wants to see him cared for. So he's not, the, some guy's doing what's right in his own eyes, Deuteronomy 12, 8, um, and we see in the book of Judges that Everywhere around Bethlehem, you got people doing whatever's right in their own eyes. For in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, except Boaz. You got a remnant. It doesn't matter if all of Israel has fallen into just rubbish. You still got this guy named Boaz, who is redeeming somebody and doing it the right way. He's doing it all under the law as a man of honor. So he gave Palgai his opportunity, and now in verse 7, now this was the custom. In former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging, 
to confirm anything, a man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. This was born out of the taking off your sandal and then spitting in their face, right? So instead of maybe spitting in the face, they give the sandal to one another as a tradition. Now that seals the deal. Why is that the image of sealing the deal? Like, where does that come from? Part of it is sandals were strapped on. So to take off a sandal took time and energy. You had to be intentional about it. It made it so that no Jewish person made quick snap decisions. They all had to think about their decisions before they made it. And when they gather the elders, which has already happened, and they do these things, um, then we have it. The other thing that that little detail adds in verse 7 is it dates the book. It helps historians figure out when this happened. Because we can look at what window of time that was the tradition. And when you have these markers, it's a really important piece where scholars can then look at that and they know that they can place Ruth in the time of the judges. Because that's when this sort of thing happened. Therefore, verse 8, a close, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. He's not making a snap decision. He's thinking about it. And he's weighing the cost and he doesn't want Naomi and Ruth. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are the witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chillin's and Malan's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, I've acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through the inheritance, and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and, and from his position at the gate, you are witnesses this day. When the deal gets made, Boaz is so excited about it. He announces it to the world. This is the good news, that we've been claimed and redeemed, and not only does the Lord of the harvest proclaim the news, he asks all his servants to proclaim the news too. We are claimed and redeemed, bought with a price, and pulled into the kingdom and the family of God so that the dead will not be lost or abandoned or forgotten, that their legacy can go on. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, oh, I'm sorry, we already read that. He says, buy it for yourself. So there is a price that gets paid, but it's also in the future tense. Buy it for yourself. So the exchange seems to have happened in law, but it hasn't happened in actual exchange yet. Again, the timing of this is just a perfect fit for Christ and how, Christ, and how, the, how everything's worked with Christ. I have bought, when he announces it to the world, though no money has been exchanged. You see the difference, like where it shifts there? So in verse 8, it says, buy it for yourself, future tense. But when he announces it in verse 9, it says, I have bought, like it's already been paid for. I've already done it. So it went from future tense to past tense when the sandal got taken off. There is something that happens. It's almost like a place filler when you see a sentence and there's an empty line there where you're supposed to fill in the blank. Taking off the sandal is almost like a fill in the blank when you, when you move that to typology for Christ. Some interchange happens there to where it's not done yet, but then it is done, and there's something that has to be finished in that fill in the blank. But at this point in the Bible, we're not given the revelation of what that is. In the New Testament, the disciples are all like, we know what that is, that's Christ on the cross. And when Jesus said it's finished, it's done, he announces it to the world, it looks just like this, right? So you see this idea. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, um, is to perpetuate the name of the dead. There's a family line that's in question here. Why is the family line important to the Hebrews? We have to go back to Genesis to see that. There was a promise that this sin that Adam and Eve fell into, there would be a point where one of one of Eve's children would crush the head of Satan and would stop this evil and this curse and this claim that Satan would have on the world. This no-named kinsman has this claim that doesn't go as far back or as deep as what Boaz wants to give. So Boaz has got to deal with, and Jesus has to deal with, this other person with a claim on the souls of these women. You are witnesses to this day. Don't miss what's going on with the witness stuff. This is their wedding. Like, we have very different traditions around weddings, but what Boaz just did right here is he just married the bride. With witnesses, in front of everybody, the claim's been made, and he's going to redeem her. So, you know, do you take this woman? And Boaz is proclaiming, yes, I do. And there is an absolute love in the, procl the proclamation that he makes is way over the top. It's very clear to everybody, and he's shouting it from the rooftops. I get Naomi and Ruth. So the public announcement is his vow, uh, that's going to come there. They're going to probably have like a, a, a 
personal wedding later, um, but this is public, it's civic, and it's godly. It follows the law. It is a marriage. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make this woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. Wow, that's a, think of what they just said there. Like, think of what they just said there. The whole city recognizes that what's happening here is holy. What's happening here is good. That, that some, somebody person who doesn't get named, not taking care of Ruth and Naomi, was like an evil that everybody in the town knew was happening. And what Boaz just did finished the evil. And the blessing they give, that's no small blessing that they just wished upon Boaz and his family. Boaz is probably in his older age. So when they say we're witnesses, there's this tone of excitement, like the whole city's kind of buzzing right now. We're done with this evil that these women are going to be cared for and they haven't been with some guy, right? So, and then they don't say Boaz make these two women come to your house. They say the Lord make the women who are coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. So at some level, it's not about Boaz even. It's about the Lord God Almighty doing a thing on this earth that is absolutely holy and wonderful and good. Right? So, both of these blessings that they say here are kind of like a prayer. Who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, may you prosper in Ephrathath and, the, and be famous in Bethlehem. May everybody know what just happened here. May your house be like the house of Perez. Oh, there's a second one. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. We, of course, need to go back to those two stories, right? These are, these are really interesting blessings that they give here. Rachel and Leah are, uh, of course, that's two women with one husband. Sound familiar? Yep. Right? Uh, it's in Genesis 29, if you want to go back and do the whole thing. Uh, Jacob wanted Rachel, and Laban tricked. There was, a, there was foolish, there was like a, a sleight of hand that went on there, and Laban tricked him and sent Leah in for the wedding first, so he claimed Leah, but Jacob really loved Rachel, so he gave another seven years of sacrifice so he could get the one he loved too. Kind of similar to him getting Naomi and also getting Ruth, the one that he loves, right? And he's willing to take them both on because he wants the woman that he loves, so he takes them both. Leah gives birth to Judah, which is kind of significant in Israel history. Like the impact of this love situation changed the nation by making the tribe that's going to be the inheriting tribe. So massive blessing in that one. Ephrathath is the grandson of Perez, and they're in that city. It's a little like sub outside part right next to Bethlehem. Um, so Ephrathath would have been genealogically the father of the town Bethlehem. Does that connect for you? So just that weird term there is not so weird to people who live in Bethlehem. That's like when we say we're in St. Paul, like our town is in honor of St. Paul. And we, some, but for Ephrathath, that would be the connection to Bethlehem. Second Chronicles 2.50, if you want to get the genealogical part of that. Perez then, whom Tamar bowed to, to Judah, is no small heritage because they're preying on Boaz's greatness in Israel. They're praying that this story goes down in history, that they become as famous as these two very important situations. So um, Tamar was Judah's daughter and, and heir's wife in Genesis 38. And Onan, the second brother, refused to take her. Remember? And he spilled his seed on the ground because he didn't want to mess with her. Um, and Judah then says that she needs to stay until his third son gets old enough to marry she takes it upon herself to dress up fancy and she tricks Judah into sex. So it's a younger woman marrying an older woman and she does it through a little bit of intention on the woman's part. And the Hebrews at this point in history are seeing that what's going on there is that she is advocating for herself out of love and willing to take an old crusty guy in order to honor the family and keep the family line going. So there's not necessarily perfect people in these stories. Judah thinks she's a harlot, which says something about Judah's character, and he goes in with the harlot and, and, and has a kid, and then they get these reminders where she has to come back and remind him that, no, no, she wasn't a harlot. She was actually there to seal the deal. So you would think not the kind of blessing you would give on people, but in this context, 
you got a younger woman marrying an older man. There's Boaz did this game with Palgai to get the deal. So the sleight of hand becomes a tradition that's one of honor because in this sleight of hand, it's done for the right reasons. And Boaz doesn't lie. He doesn't break the law, but he doesn't necessarily, he plays the guy's selfishness against him in order to get this situation where love, redemption, and care can happen. So he's, he's sly like a fox when he does this, but he's innocent as a dove at the same time. It's a nice reminder of how all the stories of the Bible overlap. They're all images that lead to the next ones, which ultimately lead to Christ. And there is a meta-narrative in the Bible. In a passage like this, I love this stuff because it makes you go back and research the Bible. Okay, where were reaching labor? Where's Tamar? Tell me, I got to remind myself of these stories because it's a meta-narrative towards Christ. It all leads to Christ. So at the end of the day, they're praying for greatness. They're witnesses to the agreement. And they show basically that there is this search for a king that they're keenly aware of. It gives us a glimpse of Jewish culture right now. They're still aware of how important this line of king is. They're looking for a Messiah. And Elimelech's line is still in the game because of this whole situation. And they're like, blessings on Boaz, blessings on your family. We hope that even though Ruth couldn't have kids after 10 years with her first husband, we're going to pray that you guys have kids because we want this story to be told forever. And they write it down and they keep it as a community. May you prosper and be famous. Those are two different things. God blessing somebody in prosperity is that Boaz not only doesn't have to pay the sacrificial price, but that God blesses his household so much that the price is just irrelevant. That it was never about that in the first place, and it shouldn't be. The elders then see all of this as good and right and decent. Because I'm sure the talk of the town was like, is this some guy ever going to take care of these women? Or is he just going to continue to make Ruth like work in the fields every day? What kind of guy is this? What kind of claimer is this person of her? So the descendants of Boaz and Ruth, um, we'll get to those here at the end of the chapter. That's how the whole story ends is a genealogy. Like all of this is towards this genealogy. So fast forward quickly now, like time, like things move quick. So Boaz takes Ruth and she became his wife. Boom. That would be the consummation of the marriage. So at this point, she would also say, I do. And he says, I do, and they get married. This is a very, uh, this is not a shotgun wedding. This is just a wedding. Why wait on this wedding? You might as well start your life together. So when he went into her, that's exactly what you think it is. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Bam, 10 years with no kid, have sex once with Boaz and they have a kid. So, boom, it just happens. So their prayers are answered. They pray for a kid and they get a kid. This is Probably a huge blessing to Boaz, who was going into his old age thinking that his line was probably about done too. So to have this all happen and this play out, whether or not Boaz was also a widower, you know, some people think maybe he had other, but this idea that he has kids and that this happens with Ruth right off the bat, it's kind of amazing. So then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel. So again, the women of the town come around Naomi. I think the women of the town were already kind of taking care of Naomi, like they knew her and when she came into town, they recognized her. Um, So the fame grows, the child is a blessing. I like how it's not Naomi or Ruth that get blessed. The first thing in verse 14 is they bless the Lord. Look at what God has done. And look at how God has done these things. So the Lord had gave her conception. Uh, interesting also, like in verse 13, it's not Boaz that gave her conception. It's the Lord that gives conception. When it comes to children, that's God's business. And I don't know why God does what he does, because some people have kids, some people don't. Some people have kids right away. Some people it takes years. But it is not something that Boaz does, and the Hebrews see it that way very clearly. It's the Lord that brings that into people's lives. So Israelites saw child-making as God's will, and it happens at conception, not at the moment of delivery, which is an interesting concept for us in America today, right? The conception is what gets celebrated. 
So the two women are celebrating now that God has not left you. It's in contrast with chapter 1, verse 20, when Naomi said, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That is completely flipped for Naomi at this point. She's absolutely a person of joy and redemption. So they first were saying, poor Naomi. Now they're saying, how blessed and, and how good is God towards Naomi. And what a wonderful thing. Then verse 15, the blessing just keeps coming. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Think of that in the ancient world. This one Moabite daughter you have, she's better than seven sons, and seven being the number of divinity. God could have given you a perfect number of sons, but this, this Ruth, she's better than that, way better than that. When Jesus talks about the bride of the church, we see poor, needy, destitute, gleaning in the fields people. What God sees is precious. And his bride is precious and to be dressed in white robes. And it's more precious than anything else. And we just see that image where the whole town is seeing this, not just Ruth and Naomi. They're blessing the whole community when this happens. So Ruth chapter 1, we saw Naomi abandoning hope. And now we see the whole town giving her that hope back. It's clearly being pointed out. Verse 17, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. And became a nurse to him. So Naomi gets to take care of her grandkid. What a huge gift. Verse 17, also the neighbor woman came and gave him a name saying, this is, the, this is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Don't miss that this, is being, this story was being gathered during the exile in Babylon or under Samuel. Right? So one of those situations, they're looking back on it. This particular verse lends us to Samuel. He would have been the high priest when David was king, and he's basically bringing this story into like contemporary relevance when he makes that sentence. Right? So where at the end of Judges, we saw pieces that were likely added on during exile. The book of Ruth was likely a story that got gathered under David's kingship. Why? Because it's David's family. Like, it's in his own family tree. Like, he wants this story put into the records in the temple. So, the hopeless is given hope, praise God, serve God, worship God. This is the God who sees us. And he brings blessing to people that think their lives are destitute. And, and it's just how God operates. It's when we think that there's no hope that God brings hope to the situation. And in that sense, sometimes we, we can, as we see this happen with people around us, we can celebrate that. It's why we say what's going on in your life and let's share some of those stories with each other. So Naomi gets to be a nurse to her own grandson that she'd already accepted she would never have. Amen to that. And blessed are the poor in spirit. They inherit the kingdom of God. The name Obed means serving or worshiping. Like, so, and I love that the town gave the kid the name. It wasn't just Boaz and Ruth naming their own kid. The whole town just names him. Like this is something that meant something to this community. A community of people living under God's law and seeing that happen, and seeing this situation go on as long as it did, uh, the whole town does this. The neighbor women gave him the name in that the story was so powerful that he got a nickname called worshiping or serving, which is the same thing in Leviticus. And the name actually stuck. So don't miss the other piece of this as we kind of wrap up Ruth tonight. This is the reason Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem is because this was their family tree. This is where their family was from. So Ruth and Boaz are the entire reason why Joseph and Mary had to make that trip. Like God's been planning this all from generations before it even happened. He put the stars in the sky to guide the wise men to this location. And this story is part of how that, what made all that clockwork tick together. And for the engineers in our room, the precision of this has got to just be stunning. Listen to the heart of God towards his people. And when we read the book of Ruth, we have to understand just how much God loves us and how much that should sink into our souls. This is from Isaiah 54, 4, because he's not only setting up Joseph and Mary, he's setting up the prophets. He's setting up everyone that's going to talk to Israel and God's people for all of history with this story because we see the heart of God. So Isaiah reflects that. Listen to the connections to Ruth here. Isaiah 54, 4, do not fear for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. 
you know, clearly thinking of widows being in a, in a situation that's shameful. More, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, or the Lord of harvests. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And he's called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. And with a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I'll have mercy on you, says the Lord your God, your Redeemer. When Boaz said, claim her or leave, and the guy says, well, I'll claim her. If, if Ruth and Naomi were in the crowd, think of the heartbreak that moment would have caused them. Of what? I thought Boaz was going to claim us. He just offered us up like cattle. And it looks like we're abandoned. He just died on a cross. It looks like it's all over. And there's a moment that they're just left with that destitution and that sunken heart until the trick gets played, until the other card gets flipped and everything gets revealed. And what the plan was from the beginning is actually beautiful. And Isaiah uses this, these images from Ruth for exactly what God's planning for all of humanity. And that there will be a moment where we think it's all over, but then when the resurrection happens, the redemption happens, and then there's this period of time after it happens where we got to kind of wait for the groom to come claim us. And that's been a, longer than the disciples thought it would be. Yet we still wait and we're still here and we're still the bride and we're still in his word and we still see what God thinks. So if you believe God keeps his promises, there's still a, a, a wedding that's going to happen soon. And we, we look forward to that with anticipation. Does this all sound really familiar? Or am I just like totally seeing this? Like you get the connections? All right, so I'm going to make a few. I'm going to go back through the whole book of Ruth. Are you ready? Number one. For this all to happen, Naomi had to be family. And so she needed to be, so Boaz had to be there as a family member in the flesh. Ruth the Moabitess got grafted into the family, just like Gentiles do. So two, there is a responsibility of the Lord of the harvest or the kingsman redeemer that is to look out for their workers and keep track of what's going on. They three had the duty to purchase family out of the kinsman redeemer had a duty. They were supposed to purchase family out of slavery, abandonment, abuse, shame, and, and this situation where they are childless widows. So that was their responsibility to do that. The kinsman redeemer had a reputation of being honorable under the law. Boaz had no record of sin that's given in the Bible. Um, so there is, there's nothing there that's held against him. And he chooses love over, over you know, this, this abandonment of these women. He has to stand guard and protect the harvest. He sleeps on the grain because he's going to take that responsibility on, not hand it off. He has the, oh, I lost my numbering. I have four number fours here. I just kept adding things in when I was doing this. So my numbering's messed up. Don't, don't keep numbering in your notes. Uh, he has the will to stand guard and protect the harvest, keep diligence for his family. He has the honor to wait and not go after Ruth until Ruth expresses her desire to be sought out. Like, I just think that's gentlemanly of God. God has the power to absolutely compel us. So there's this idea that he doesn't force his will on Ruth. He waits for Ruth to express her desire before he does anything. But once she does, he's moving into action instantly, right? So he makes a public claim. He does it with witnesses. He does it out in the open. God always has worked in the open. He has the option to substitute this temple sacrifice demands with something more valuable under the law. So Boaz can take that sacrifice and he can give something even more valuable. He has the ability to act in love. The kinsman redeemer doesn't do this under selfish gain. Boaz does this at his own cost, giving his own life for the purchase price in the case of Jesus. And then he takes this soul under her wing or under the flap uh, and, and brings this person in. The kinsman redeemer has to deal with some pal guy that has some claim that he's not bothering to do anything with because he doesn't really love or care for people at all. He, the kinsman redeemer has the joy of claiming a bride. And we see that in Boaz's exuberance. Like He's happy to do this. So we also remember Naomi had her wash herself, put on her, her nice clothes, not her work clothes. So the bride is getting prepared in the time being. Right? We see that image come out later in the Bible. The kinsman redeemer has to go away for a short time to make his legal claim. 
and get that legal part taken care of. Then he sacrifices his own wealth to save the bride. He has the joy of preparing a place for his bride and getting everything set up. And then when the bride is saved, she gets brought in and she's saved and loved. And the story just ends there, implying for the rest of her life, for the rest of eternity, Ruth and Naomi are just taken care of. They're in the family. So Naomi the Jew, Ruth the Gentile are both brought into the family. What a great image. I'm a, I appreciate the Gentile part. And then we have this idea that at the end of this, there's fruit in that relationship in the form of this child and the continued line of, of, the, of the Messiah. And the end result is that the Jew and the Gentile get saved together and they're both equally blessed. And the fruit of the Gentile is then taken in by the Jewish people. Amazing images of like the point of the Gentile church is that the Jewish people will be brought back into it. And they'll see the fruit of the benefit of that. All of this should sound not just familiar, but perfect, right? You can't orchestrate this kind of thing as a human being. Only God can do this in history. Only God can set up the images of Tamar beforehand and the images of Ruth that match Christ afterwards. And everything's orchestrated like a giant perfect machine. And God puts this all together in a way that we see God. We don't just see Ruth and Naomi. We see the work of God in history and how absolutely precise and perfect every bit of it is. And that should give us confidence and courage to be bold with what we know in Christ Jesus, to be excited about what our God is doing, not to be hiding in corners and not to be ashamed of our Christ, but to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ because it's perfect. And we, we live in a culture right now that is so quick to mock and critique and run down the Bible, but they do it out of ignorance and they do it out of blindness. And if you study it, you see its perfection. If you ignore it and you don't bother to read it, it's really easy to critique it. But that's what foolish people do. Wisdom starts, the root of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and understanding the power of God. So we humbly come to God's feet, just like Ruth did. And we humbly come to the feet of Christ and we ask to be taken as his bride. And it's his good pleasure to do that and to claim us. Again, I'm going to read another larger passage because it was a short chapter, and I really love the connections Ruth makes to other parts of the Bible. I'm going to go to the New Testament and go to Philippians chapter 2. If you want to go there with me, I'm going to read a larger passage here. The way Philippians frames salvation through Christ uses all of the stuff we just got out of Ruth. Like the disciples studied the Old Testament too. But they, they understand and they see the connections, and it's unmistakable when you have eyes to see. So I'm just going to read this passage for what it is and, and let you kind of hear some of these concepts of how we come humbly to the Lord and how that is what unlocks salvation, right? That request. Philippians 2, uh, starting with verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, like do you ever doubt if God loves us or not? So you don't want any consolation in that area. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let's all get on the same page with this one idea, Philippians says. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let's each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others, like Boaz. Let this, be, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, the lowest form of position on this earth. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and made himself obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore my beloved, like he's talking to his fellow church people, the people I love as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, don't obey me, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in both in you, both to, God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He wants to save us. 
Do all things without complaining and disputing. Sounds like Ruth. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run or in vain or labored in vain. From Ruth forward, at this point, like the law is wonderful and it's beautiful in its own right, but from the book of Ruth on, the Hebrew people have a clear image that humility is desirable by God. There is no mistaking that the virtue and character traits that are laid out in the book of Ruth are ones that are going to save them from absolute destruction. It's Ruth's humility. It's Boaz's sacrifice. These are the things that God loves despite living in a very perverse and crooked generation in the era of Judges. This is what stands out. And Samuel, which we'll get to next week. But this is what love looks like under the law. It looks like humility. It looks like service. It looks like honor and valor. And it looks like love. These are the things that God values, and it's his heart for his people that we value these things too with one mind. It's the book of Ruth that sets up Philippians. It sets up the message of Christ. It sets up the love of the kingdom. Because the law doesn't do that. The law just tells us when we're broken. But this tells us what God looks for that's healed. Verse 18, and back in our chapter, just to lay this into their history, to bake it into their DNA, now, now being the result of the book of Ruth, now this is the generation of Perez. Perez bought Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashton, Nashton begot Salmon, which big deal up until verse 21. None of this really mattered. These are obscure little families in an obscure little town, in an obscure little place that don't mean anything. But now... This is the genealogy. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed, worship. Worship begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Now this is where kings come from. This is what God cares about. So by even working this into his line, the book of Ruth becomes essential in Jewish history. And Jesus does that through the birth of Obed, this worship, this spirit of praise that comes out. Really simple point here, God works in history. This is the only religion, Jewish, Judeo-Christian tradition is the only one where God works throughout all of history. It's not a single showing with golden tablets. It's not a, a, a magical moment in a basement somewhere. It's not the thinkings on the hills of the Himalayas written down in scripted obscure things. It's not weird prophecies born in Egypt. God is a God that works throughout all of human history in a way that we can understand. And he's made himself revealed to us and he's shined his light to us because that was the plan from Genesis 1. Like we could see God and we could see what God does through our history. Super simple point. And when we see 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, I think that's the point that's being made at the end of Ruth. This is a God of history. This isn't a legend. It's not an Aesop's fable. It's history. And it's treating itself as a writer. This is being treated as a historical document. And, it, and the genealogy makes it a historical document. It's just saying, we just want to expand one little story here. And this story gets put right into the genealogy in Matthew for the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Simple connection. The book of Ruth is the only real connection between Perez and David. Otherwise, these are obscure lines that would have been missed. So when we do a genealogy, when Matthew makes his genealogy and goes all the way from, um, from David all the way through Jesus, he uses this line to get, from, get back to Abraham. Without Ruth, he wouldn't have had that clear connection. Chronicles wouldn't have been able to build this up from the genealogies of, of, of Numbers, right? So we needed this connection from the, from the earlier books in the Old Testament to get into Chronicles these three verses, four verses, are the only things that get us there. Five verses. Also, this last book, this little piece, in addition to the tradition with the sandals, dates the book of Ruth to being written sometime when David was king. Because it ends at David, right? We don't see what happens after David here. So, interestingly, they don't do a genealogy of Saul. Because he was a king too, right? He was the first king. But the genealogy for in God's eyes, Saul was the king the humans picked. 
But David's the king that God picked. And God was already picking that king three generations beforehand. I just look at that and I think, what kind of God do we serve that knows that and understands that? So humility, love, sacrifice, faithfulness, all of this leads to the great-grandson being the first real king of Israel and the first king that God's going to really bless. Um, so this is more than answering the prayer of verse 14, <laughs> right? It all got prayed for back in verse 14. And the end of the book says, and it all really got answered. Like Ruth is like Tamar. He, this is a story that looks a lot like the stories of old, the stories of Genesis. In fact, Ruth is absolutely in that tradition because she's being loved and blessed by God in that sort of situation. So we have this transition between the histories and now we're going to move into the book of Samuel and then Kings and Chronicles. This is an absolute hinge point in the Old Testament. And these verses are part of that hinge. Like we're going to move now towards the era of kings. Um, Samuel starts out during the era of judges, but it's Samuel that will go and anoint the first king and we move into the era of kings, which is kind of fun. So, amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for what a blessing your word is to us. Uh, that Lord, your word is sacred and we, we don't take it lightly at all. Um, Lord, we are so filled with the idea that you love us, you want to redeem us, Lord, and you do it with great joy. You take that opportunity and embrace it. What an absolute gift. Um, Lord, for those of us in this room that have accepted that gift, uh, may they just be blessed this week. May the holidays be a time when they can share their love and their grace and their peace with the people around them. May they be a blessing to their family, not a curse. Uh, may the words from their mouth be encouraging and edifying um, and, Lord, just a light to the people around them. And I just pray that we can know that we're loved in such a way that we have plenty of love to give to other people and we're abundant in our love. And our love is one that we just keep adding rooms to our heart for more and more people. Lord, we know that you can do a work that we can't even imagine, that you can plan things generations ahead of time with perfection. Uh, Lord, we see what you're doing in Ruth. We, we get the imagery, um, and we just appreciate it. Lord, thank you for talking to our hearts, not just through histories and genealogies, but through stories and love stories and narratives. Thank you, Lord, for the adventures that we're going to get in, in coming books, Lord. And we just know that you know humanity and you know that we needed to hear these messages in different formats and different ways so that we could recognize Messiah. Lord, we just thank you that you came to redeem us, that there was a price and you paid it and you did it with joy. Uh, Lord, we can't imagine what kind of uh, cost that was, um, but we know that you dealt with some guy that had some claim on us back in the day. Um, and Lord, we just thank you for claiming us as your bride. We pray you return soon. Waiting makes us anxious. And Lord, we want you to come back as soon as possible. And we know we got plans, but we know they're not as good as what you have in store. So if you want to come back tomorrow, tonight, we're cool with that. Um, but Lord, we'll wait until you come because you told us you would. Uh, and we hold that promise close to our hearts as expectant brides. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.